0: This hearing will come to order. Uh, Let me first uh, welcome you all to the third hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on East Asia, the Pacific, and International Cybersecurity Policy in the 116th Congress. Thank you very much for being here today and participating in this hearing. Uh, This hearing will be the second hearing in a three-part series to examine the implementation of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or ARIA, which Senator Markey and I led in the 115th Congress and which was signed into law on December 31st, 2018. Uh, Today's hearing is focused on trade and economic issues, an essential component of ARIA, and an urgent priority for U.S. policy in the Indo-Pacific region. As stated in Section 301 of ARIA, trade between the United States and the nations in the Indo-Pacific region is vitally important to the United States economy. Uh, United States exports jobs in the United States. As cited in Uh, that section, by 2030, it is estimated that 66 percent of the global middle-class population will be living in Asia, and 59 percent of middle-class consumption uh, will take place in Asia. The United States simply cannot miss the opportunity to be a key player in these markets. The future success of our economy depends on the Indo-Pacific that is free and open to American goods and services, and perhaps more importantly, to American standards of transparency, accountability, and the rule of law. Uh, this is why, as part of ARIA, Congress has officially endorsed multilateral, bilateral, or regional trade agreements between the United States and nations of the Indo-Pacific, as well as the negotiation of a comprehensive economic engagement framework uh, with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. We also specifically authorized funds for the administration to produce a robust, comprehensive trade capacity building and trade facilitation strategy in the Indo-Pacific, and to uh, produce an Indo-Pacific energy strategy that will provide... Uh, that will provide um, uh, help to provide access to sufficient, reliable, and affordable power in order to reduce poverty, drive economic growth, and job creation, and to increase energy security in the Indo-Pacific region. What also makes today's hearing unique is that we have witnesses from outside the D.C. Beltway to uh, help members uh, provide uh, firsthand experience on how to trade with the nations of the Indo-Pacific in, in, and how that trade with the Indo-Pacific impacts the livelihoods of American farmers and ranchers, and what they would like to see from Washington to help them succeed. So I'd like to thank all of our witnesses for being here today uh, and look forward to hearing their recommendations on how the United States can better prioritize trade and economic tools uh, in the Indo-Pacific region to benefit American companies, exporters, and workers. And with that, I will turn over to Senator Markey. Thank you so
1: much, Mr. Chairman, and thank you once again for (coughs) this uh, comprehensive set of hearings, which we have been – Uh, conducting. Um, Mr. Chairman, we were able to accomplish a great deal last year when the Gardner-Markey Asia Reassurance Initiative Act, or uh, ARIA, became law. It was a statement of American commitment to our friends and partners throughout the Indo-Pacific. But it was also a statement about the incredible growth and dynamism of the region. It recognized that approximately half of the world's population lives in the Indo-Pacific. That is the fastest growing economic region of the world with a GDP growth rate of more than 5%. That an estimated 60% of global maritime trade traverses the sea lanes of the South China Sea, 60%. And it recognized that promoting US economic interest in the Indo-Pacific is a critical component of American foreign policy. So I am pleased That this hearing provides an opportunity to discuss some of the most pressing economic issues that the United States faces as it engages in the region. First, as a region, the Indo-Pacific is America's largest trading partner, with nearly $1.8 trillion in total trade per year. Of American goods (coughs) and services exports, 30% go to that region. And three million U.S. jobs are supported by exports to and investments in the Indo-Pacific. Although American companies have a wide array of goods (coughs) and services that can competitively meet the needs of the people throughout the region, I would like to draw attention to one area where there are particular opportunities, renewable energy. Right now, Asia is building more new coal power plants than any other region, even though overall coal plant construction is falling globally. As the Chinese government's Belt and Road Initiative a conglomeration of various infrastructure development projects around the world is a major contributor. According to the Natural Resources Defense Council, Chinese financial institutions are the world's largest investors of overseas coal plants, providing $15 billion through international development funds and coal projects from 2013 to 2016, with an additional $13 billion in proposed funding. The combination of the supply, With the demand from the region for energy creates a major problem. These and other non-climate-friendly BRI projects could put the region on an unsustainable course. But we are not resigned to this fate. We are at an inflection point, one that presents significant opportunities for us to do the right thing for the planet, but also for the American economy. According to the International Finance Corporation, the Paris Agreement will help to open up nearly $16 trillion in opportunities for climate smart investments in just four Indo Pacific countries China, Indonesia, Vietnam, and the Philippines. Southeast Asia faces a $2.6 trillion energy and infrastructure investment gap through 2040. And more than a quarter of Indonesia's population is not connected to the national grid, leaving approximately 66 million people without access to electricity. These are opportunities to simultaneously, one, reduce poverty. And improve people's lives, two, implement good energy policy for the benefit of the planet, three, maintain America's close economic partnerships with the region, and four, create economic growth for American companies. Right now, according to a Tufts University study, there is, quote, danger of U.S. companies being blocked out of emerging clean energy technology markets. We require a two-pronged approach to take advantage of the opportunities before us, <clears throat> the U.S. government must, uh, must pave the way by setting up fully resourced structures to provide proactive solutions to infrastructure and, and energy challenges in the Indo-Pacific. Simultaneously, we must address impediments in foreign government policies, wherever they exist, from government-encouraged intellectual property theft to the unfair advantages enjoyed by state-owned enterprises. Abuses of the global economic system need to stop. We can settle for nothing less than a set of of rules that ensures a level playing field for all, giving the opportunity for U.S. companies to continue to be the gold standard for dynamic, effective, and responsible business practices around the world and allowing the ingenuity and productivity of American workers to flourish and prosper. These challenges are too important and the stakes are too high. The United States simply cannot afford to cede leadership on this to China or any other country. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for this hearing.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey. And I know uh, one of our witnesses has to leave a little bit early and catch a, a plane. Uh, and so I wanna, I'm gonna cut our introductions of the witnesses just a little bit short so that we can get to testimony, and get to questions as soon as possible. Uh, so I'm gonna begin tonight, uh, this, this morning's hearing with uh, Mr. Carlisle Courier, uh, Vice President of the Colorado Farm Bureau, uh, active in, in production agriculture, uh, and uh, appreciate your willingness to be here today. We're joined as well by Mr. Matthew Goodman, uh, the Senior Vice President for the Center for Strategic and International Studies, as well as Dr. Joanna Lewis, Associate Professor at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service, Georgetown University. Uh, so I thank all of you for being here and we'll, we'll just cut those introductions a little bit short so
2: we can begin with uh, Mr. Carlisle's uh, Mr. Courier's uh, testimony. Well, thank you and good morning Mr. Chairman and members of the committee. Thank you for the time to speak with you today. My name is Carlisle Courier. I'm a rancher from Molina, Colorado. Ours is a fourth generation mountain ranch and part of it is officially recognized as a Colorado centennial farm being owned and operated by my family for more than 100 years. We run about 500 cows with summer grazing on Grand Mesa National Forest and irrigate about 1,200 acres where we raise alfalfa, grass hay, and small grains. I serve on a number of boards and committees with many organizations. Currently I am Vice President of the Colorado Farm Bureau. I also serve on the Board of Directors of the U.S. Meat Export Federation and a past member of the Cattlemen's Beef Board and serve on numerous water boards, including as chairman of the Colorado Agricultural Water Alliance. My testimony today will focus on the role of Indo-Pacific markets and the potential positive outcomes of new policies such as the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act that is in front of us today. The act will help increase market access in the Indo-Pacific countries and avoid harmful disputes. Export markets are critical to American agriculture. American farmers and ranchers exported over $140 billion in products worldwide in 2017. Overall, more than 25% of total agricultural production goes to export markets. In Colorado, as in other states, we rely on trade each day to market the products we work so hard to grow. In fact, about 35% of U.S. farm income is derived from selling agricultural products overseas. Legislation like ARIA is important to building and maintaining long lasting relationships with our trading partners and helps avoid trade disruptions and disputes. We are concerned with the blowback from the administration's decision to place tariffs on our trading partners. While some of these barriers have fallen in the past few days, agriculture is still bearing the brunt of retaliation at a time when farmers are already facing low commodity prices, high input costs and unpredictable weather the trade dispute between the us and china is placing tremendous pressure on american agricultural products while we've support the administration's goals of pushing china to abandon its unfair trading practices it is difficult for agriculture to bear this burden net farm income has dropped 52% in the last 5 years making it extremely difficult for farmers and ranchers to continue operating in addition the addition of a trade war comes at a time when we can ill afford it. But legislation like ARIA can help to ease the burden in the immediate term. In 2018, egg exports from Colorado to 16 countries in the Indo Pacific region were in excess of $903 million. Several markets in the region have seen significant expansion in the last couple of years, with overall volume, market share, and value all on the rise. For instance, total ag exports from Colorado to Indonesia totaled more than $51 in 2018, and it looks like that trend will continue as exports increased 22 percent between March 2018 and March 2019. Additionally, Colorado's exports to Thailand increased 53 percent between 2017 and 2018 to more than $30 million. These numbers show the massive potential for agricultural exports to the region. As incomes rise and consumer tastes change, legislation like ARIA can provide a solid footing for agriculture to build the necessary relationships and programs to seize the opportunity and grow market share in the region. Strengthen relationships and increase market access is important to provide needed stability to farm families, not only in Colorado, but nationwide. Legislation that can strengthen ties in the Indo-Pacific region, improve trading relationships, expand markets, and advance economic diplomacy will be a powerful tool to help offset losses associated with the shrinking market access and tariff-related barriers that we are currently experiencing in markets like China. For all these reasons, I would ask for your support of the Asia Reassurance Initiative Act. This is a tremendous opportunity to advance open and fair agricultural trade and for farm and ranch families like mine now and in the future.
0: Thank you, Mr. Courier, for coming all the way from Colorado uh, to be here today and uh, for surviving yet another May snowstorm uh, to get through here. (laughs)
3: Thank you, Mr. Goodman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. Um, And thank you for this opportunity to offer my thoughts on the benefits of economic diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, Let me first commend the chairman and and other members for their work in passing the ARIA Act in the last Congress. The act is pitch perfect in reassuring uh, skeptics both in the region and here at home about the U.S. stake and commitment in the vital Indo-Pacific region. In my written testimony, I offer more detailed thoughts on why and how the United States should step up its economic diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific Here I just want to make one broad point and then mention a specific program that highlights what we should be doing more of in the region. The point I want to stress is that we should be more confident about our position in the Indo-Pacific. Do we have challenges there? Of course. But if the competition in the region is a marathon, we started about two miles ahead of the pack. Our security posture in the region, founded on a bedrock of strong alliances, is a source of stability that most countries there highly value. Our economic position is strong. We have the world's largest market, and we're growing above potential. We have great companies that offer great products and services and operate according to the rule of law. The United States has invested in the success of our allies and partners in the region. We offer technical assistance to build capacity in these countries, like the things suggested in ARIA, and help them develop the right way. And the traditional openness of our society, our great universities, our movies, and other elements of our soft power are huge draws for people in the region. Is China a growing presence in the region? Yes. Is Beijing offering things Asians want, including a growing consumer market, advanced technologies, and infrastructure? Yes. Uh, Back to my marathon metaphor, did the Chinese cheat by running over the hill from mile post seven to mile post 17? Yes. Should we try to stop this cheating? Absolutely. But our main focus should be on running our own race and trying to run faster. We certainly shouldn't tie our shoelaces together by doing unhelpful things like pulling out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership or hitting our allies with tariffs. But we can sustain our leadership if we do the right things, like some of the things mentioned in Aria. Um, But I'd start with showing up making sure we're in the region and and present at all levels, from the president down to uh, junior officials regularly, Uh, developing a comprehensive strategy that involves all the main tools of economic policy, especially a credible trade policy, and actively participating in regional institution building for which there is a big demand in the region. In my written testimony, I offer a number of recommendations for putting ARIA into action, which fall into three broad buckets, credible policies, effective programs, and needed investments in people. I'd be happy to elaborate on these ideas and answer to your questions. But I'd like to use my remaining time to focus on one program that highlights the kind of low-cost, high-impact economic diplomacy that can bolster our position in the Indo-Pacific. Last month, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about a program administered by USAID that involved dropping teams of American lawyers and economists into Myanmar or Burma to help local officials ask the right questions when negotiating contracts for infrastructure projects with Chinese entities. According to the article, as a result of this assistance, Myanmar was able to renegotiate the terms of a deep water port project funded by the Chinese, cutting the scale of the project by billions of dollars and reducing the country's potential debt burden. The aid program in Myanmar is the kind of work that would be boosted by the Trump administration's proposed transaction Advisory Fund, or TAF, under its free and open Indo-Pacific strategy rolled out last summer. I understand the administration has requested a relatively small amount of money, on the order of $10 million, I think, to get the TAF up and running, but that it's stuck in the house. In my view, this program is the kind of creative economic statecraft that's key to U.S. success in the Indo-Pacific. It's not expensive, but it leverages our comparative advantages, and certainly lawyering is a U.S. comparative advantage. Uh, to bring something that the countries in the region want, especially where they have real questions about what China's offering. Again, I go back to my point at the beginning. The United States starts with tremendous advantages in the Indo-Pacific, and we don't need to spend trillions of dollars on grand initiatives with fancy names to sustain our economic leadership there. What we do need is a comprehensive, well-coordinated, nimble economic diplomacy that plays to our strengths. There's a lot more to say, but I don't want to abuse my time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Mr. Goodman. Dr. Lewis.
4: Chairman Gardner, Ranking Member Markey, thank you for the opportunity to discuss economic diplomacy in Asia, particularly as relates to the opportunities for clean energy. Developing countries are the engine for growth in energy demand of the 21st century. India, China, and Southeast Asia together account for 60 percent of the projected future energy demand globally through 2040. Growing global energy demand will require significant investments in new energy infrastructure, and most of this investment will be in renewable energy. Around $7.8 trillion is projected to be invested in renewable power worldwide through 2040. BP projects two-thirds of new power generation will come from renewables over the next two decades. The directions that Asia's energy growth takes are driven by a variety of national and regional concerns, including economic development and job creation, energy security, electricity access air quality and public health, and climate change mitigation. Asia's energy future will be both green and brown. Asia will make up half of global growth in natural gas, 60 percent of the rise in wind and solar, more than 80 percent of the increase in oil, and more than 100 percent of the growth in coal and nuclear. If Asia's growing economies continue to rely on fossil fuels and do not leapfrog to advanced, cleaner technologies, emerging Asia will lock in a commitment to future carbon emissions that will crush global climate efforts. As we have been warned by the most recent IPCC report, power generation systems will need to reach net-zero carbon emissions around 2050 to stabilize global emissions and avoid the most dangerous climate impacts. There are two key opportunities to shape Asia's clean energy future, one, by shaping the source and nature of investments in Asia's growing energy infrastructure, and two, by shaping the types of technologies that are deployed. Currently, the country playing the biggest role in shaping the energy future of its neighbors is China. China has emerged as the largest single provider of overseas infrastructure investment in the world and particularly in Asia. Many of these investments are indeed motivated by China's Belt and Road Initiative. China has been dominating the sales of coal plants abroad. As the largest coal user in the world, China has put in place very stringent environmental regulations to reduce domestic air pollution and has established the world's largest carbon market. As a result, There are reports that as China is shutting down some of their dirtier, less efficient coal plants before the end of their useful life, they are exporting these dismantled plants to countries in Southeast Asia. This goes against the vision for a cleaner energy future that many governments are putting forward. For example, many Asian countries have pledged aggressive renewable energy targets in their Paris Agreement commitments. In contrast, almost all of the multilateral development banks have been restricting coal plant investments due to environmental concerns. It is clear from these trends that the source of investment matters in shaping energy technology decisions. There are major opportunities to expand U.S. involvement in both technology and investment decisions in emerging Asia. For example, energy storage technologies represent a $620 billion investment opportunity over the next two decades. If China's first major clean energy technology successes were in wind and solar, their next big success is poised to be in energy storage. China has made bold commitments for electric vehicles that are driving its dominance in battery technologies. Its 2018 new energy vehicle mandate includes a target for 4.6 million electric vehicles by 2020 and plans to eventually ban cars with traditional internal combustion engines. This single policy has had ripple effects across the globe. Within 48 hours of China's announcing their target, General Motors and Ford both announced major electric vehicle initiatives. There's been a lot of attention rightfully placed on intellectual property theft by China. At least one high-profile case occurred in the wind power industry. However, research supports the finding that most of the IP that Chinese companies acquired in the clean energy space was obtained legally. Most studies of Chinese wind and solar industries have not found significant obstacles to accessing advanced technologies and intellectual property through licensing, mergers, or research partnerships with foreign firms. The much larger challenge for China has been the development of a healthy innovation system. The U.S. should not stand by and let China use its state-directed industrial policy to dominate the energy technologies of the future. As one Detroit publication states, the U.S. auto industry risks becoming an isolated technical backwater while China surges into the global lead in a technology its government has targeted as a key to leadership for the 21st century. The transition to a low-carbon economy is already underway, and the U.S. is currently a leader in the development of the next generation of energy technologies. Therefore it is now time to double down on programs that are accelerating the clean energy transition, ensuring we don't fall behind in innovating the core technologies of the future. The Asia Reassurance Initiative Act of 2018 calls for expanded energy cooperation in the region. The United States is innovative because of its global linkages and partnerships and not in spite of them. Therefore, I recommend that the U.S. government launch a new bilateral cooperation in emerging Asia, including building off effective models of collaboration in both China and India that have directly dealt with intellectual property rights. They should, we should partner with the private sector to design and pilot a finance facility for clean energy technology projects in emerging markets, and we should engage in expanded dialogue with China on how we can ensure development finance institutions do not undermine global decarbonization efforts. These recommendations are elaborated in my statement and I'm happy to discuss any further during the questioning. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Dr. Lewis. Uh, and again, thank you all for your testimony today and, and the time you took to be here. Uh, I'll begin with the, with the five-minute round of questions, if you don't mind. Uh, Mr. Courier. I know you are going to have to leave, uh, uh, so I'll start with you. You mentioned a couple of, I think, very compelling statistics in your opening statement uh, that 35 percent of U.S. farm income is derived from selling agricultural products overseas. Uh, And if you look at the top exports from Colorado, it's uh, within the top 10, throughout the top 10 exported items from Colorado, uh, you will find uh, agriculture at least in five or six of those different components, uh, various sectors in agriculture. Um, You also mentioned though that we've seen a 52 percent drop in farm income over the last five years. Commodity prices were low prior to uh, the tariff imposition by the administration, but certainly the tariffs haven't made it any easier or better or how to recover from those low commodity prices. Could you talk a little bit about the impact of uh, tariffs on
2: uh, agriculture in Colorado or beyond? Yes, thank you for the question, Senator Gardner. Uh, Tariffs have impacted um, the ability to to market uh, products to certain markets, uh, specifically China. Uh, There's huge potential for for markets in China. We've exported in the past a great deal of soybeans, a great deal of uh, pork to the Chinese market. Um, More importantly, from my standpoint, is the potential for further markets. So we were just getting the the market open to beef in China. Uh, Beef is the largest export from agricultural export market from Colorado about... uh, Really, about two-thirds of our hay exports from Colorado are our beef and and hides, from beef cattle, and uh, by limiting the ability to send those products to China, it's forcing us to to look at at other markets to to uh, find uh, a place to sell those products without uh, the Chinese market available. Um, that limits our ability to reach out to that part of of the world and and to um, sell the products at a price that helps our prices. Because of that, uh, beef prices have decreased significantly, about uh, 15% in the last three months. Uh, We uh, would very much like to see all the markets open that we can. Uh, The whole Indo-Pacific region is is a huge area for potential. You know, one of the big areas we saw great increases in was Korea. I didn't mention earlier, but uh, after the uh, improved Korea-U.S. trade package that was approved last year, our markets to Korea have have really increased significantly, and we feel that that can can happen in in all the Indochina or Indo-Pacific markets if we have that open market and that level playing field where we can sell our product um, as I said earlier, we uh, we understand the problems with China. The you know China was not playing fair, and that needs to, to be addressed. So as quickly as possible, as and we can find ways to address that issue, we would like to be able to sell our beef and other products to to all the Indo Pacific markets, including China. Uh, thank you, Mr. Courier. And uh, you talked about some of the challenges we face in trade and
0: uh, tariffs and uh, the price challenges. Uh, We've had some good news recently with the opening of uh, Japan uh, to U.S. beef. Uh, The Asia Reassurance Initiative Act sets out several different standards for uh, pursuing multilateral and bilateral trade engagements. Uh, Could you – and you mentioned also in your your comments the the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement that we entered into years ago and, of course, the renegotiated terms uh, of this past year. And I think in Colorado alone, that has added about six thousand jobs uh, uh, to to the state. And most of those jobs are in agriculture, uh, and so we know the benefit of trade. Could you talk a little bit about what you think the impact of, of just opening Japan uh, would be?
2: I, I think Japan would be huge if we could get that totally open. We were um, by by pulling out of the TPP agreement, it allowed Australia and New Zealand to have advantages from a tariff standpoint over American beef going into Japan. Uh, we very much would like to see uh, um, some kind of bilateral agreement so that we can um, have level playing field with with Australia and New Zealand in selling our beef products to Japan. I think that's very doable, and, and we certainly hope that that can be done as quickly as possible. Uh, Japan, historically, over the last 10 years, has been our number one market for export for, for beef. We're actually in a situation right now where Korea may pass it in the next year. Uh, Korea is increasing very rapidly, and uh, the potential in Japan is huge. There's a very large population there, and they're learning to really like beef, <laughs> and we'd like to provide that beef. I think uh, American beef is better for them than, than Australian or New Zealand beef, so we want to be able to be in that market, and so whatever we can do to... to fully open that market. We're very thankful that Japan did this last week, uh, agreed to buy buy beef from all cattle in the US. It was limited to those under 30 months. They've now opened it up so that uh, all beef is eligible to send to Japan and we hope we can get the tariff down to where, where we're on a level playing field with our competitors. Thank you, Mr. Courier, uh, Senator Markey. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Uh,
1: Dr. Lewis, um, you stated that China's state-run banks, the China Development Bank and the China Export-Import Bank, may have provided somewhere between between $75 and $125 billion in energy infrastructure financing within Asia. And you also mentioned that India, China, and Southeast Asia together account for 60% of the projected future energy demand globally through 2040. We also know from the International Finance Corporation that three key Southeastern Asian countries, Indonesia, Vietnam, and the Philippines, all of which were singled out in the Gardner-Markey ARIA legislation as key partners, together have climate-smart business investment potential of over $1 trillion. Dr. Lewis, how important is the Indo-Pacific as a market for American companies, especially in the areas of renewable energy, including energy infrastructure and services?
4: I think it's extremely important. Uh, As you've just laid out, this is is already becoming the biggest market in the world, and all projections state that this is really where the future of energy um, demand lies. And there's um, really, I think, you see a lot of emerging Asian countries at an inflection point of deciding the direction the energy future is going to take. Um, These are countries that are struggling with traditional environmental pollution problems, and clean energy, of course, is something that is helpful in many respects. Uh, It can bring local economic development benefit, it can bring local jobs, um, and it can deal with environmental problems. So
1: to what degree can American companies play a role here in these these Asian uh, emerging marketplaces?
4: There are many technology areas in the clean energy space where American companies still provide uh, world-class technologies and are leading the world, and this comes through um, both our... You know, we see this in the renewable energy technology industries, but particularly in the um, the skills that need to go along <coughs> with building out these technology industries. So if you want to... If these countries want to um, shift towards renewable energy, they, d- they can't just, um, you know, immediately... Um, put in place solar panels. They need a lot of planning. They need the tools. They need the policy environment in place. And there's a lot of uh, work going on in the United States to look at how to build these industries (coughs) from the ground up. Um, U.S. companies have the expertise still in many of the core clean energy technologies of the future. And energy storage is one I mentioned that is is quite strategic. Energy
1: storage is a, a, a center of opportunity for American companies. So-
4: Absolutely. Uh, this is still an area where we are leading. The two biggest markets right now are in the United States and China. And energy storage has dual purpose of helping to integrate renewables in the grid. Um, so it has a power systems application as well as... again, just to come as back well to what as- you're
1: saying, you, you're saying that China and the U.S. are in a competition on, uh, on storage technologies and that these, com- these countries are going to be looking uh, to some place to purchase it. And uh, ultimately, it's going to be integrated into their electricity strategies in the years ahead. So it's a huge market opening for the United States.
4: And I think there's strengths that China has, there's strengths that the United States has. Um, and you know, there's a lot of Chinese companies right now that are really quickly expanding in this area, but they're struggling um, a lot from technology quality, from overcapacity in the industry, Um, You know, it's a very different innovation environment, of course, in China than the U.S., and so I think this is an area where we should, you know, we should really be moving much more quickly.
1: Uh, Section 306 of the Gardner-Marki Asia Reassurance Initiative legislation requires the president to submit a strategy to encourage the efforts of Indo-Pacific countries to implement national power strategies in cooperation with United States energy companies and the Department of Energy National Laboratories to develop an appropriate mix of power solutions. The reason is because we believe that doing so can provide access to sufficient, reliable and affordable power to reduce poverty, drive economic growth and job creation, and to increase energy security in the Indo-Pacific region. Dr. Lewis, can you describe how the Department of Energy's national laboratories can help develop power solutions, especially in renewable energy for countries in the Indo-Pacific.
4: Um, our national laboratory is under the U.S. Department of Energy some of the best in the world at providing um, energy technology solutions. I spent many years working at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory on Clean Energy Technologies in China and around the world. The National Renewable Energy Laboratory also has a lot of expansive work in developing countries in particular, helping them to think through appropriate energy technologies and how to maximize low-carbon development. There's a wide variety of tools, models, data analysis, which um, are extremely important um, aspects to understanding energy potential in these countries. And the national laboratories provide an extremely important role in technical cooperation in pushing forward the clean energy future that these countries would like to provide.
1: Beautiful. And I'm just going to come back to your testimony and just say these words again because they're so staggering. Growing global energy demand will require significant investments in new energy infrastructure. And most of this investment will be renewable energy, around $7.8 trillion dollars is projected to be invested in renewable power worldwide through 2040 in technologies including onshore and offshore wind, utility scale, rooftop, distributed solar and hydropower. Renewable energy, in fact, comprises the bulk of the investment that is projected to be spent across the entire power sector. So that's just a staggering opportunity and Something that we need a plan to capture before all these countries move on, and uh, and aren't including American technologies and workers in the solution. So I'm looking forward to a second round. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey, and uh, Mr. Courier. Uh, I know uh, any time now, you're please feel free to uh, be excused from the committee if you need to uh, go catch that flight. So at any point, uh, I don't think Senator Markey or I will be uh, offended uh, if you need to leave. So thank you very much for being here today. Uh, Mr. Goodman, uh, I'll come back to you uh, with a couple of questions uh, as well. Uh, just to point out that, uh, according to the Asian Development Bank, Asian countries have signed 140 bilateral or regional trade agreements, and more than 75 more trade agreements with Asian countries are currently under negotiation, or they're concluded in awaiting uh, entry into enactment. Uh, in that time, 140 plus 75, they're in the works. Uh, free trade agreements between the United States and three nations in the Indo-Pacific region have entered into force. We are woefully uh, behind. And so if you look at the, uh, the the numbers that Mr. Kruger pointed out in terms of the the, the dollars that uh, exports add to our, our agricultural industries, um, you look at the opportunities in trade, uh, uh, trillions of dollars in trade that occurs in these regions with three trade agreements that we're a part of, uh, the Gardner-Markey ARIA legislation talks about that trade capacity, it directs the President to seek an United States ASEAN Economic Partnership, a comprehensive economic engagement framework with the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, uh, talks about uh, trade capacity building, trade facilitation. It, it, the, the, if you were to talk to the U.S. Trade Representative today, uh, their office would continue to say and state their opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, now uh, I've been a supporter of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and believe this is important, and I believe uh, ARIA it makes it very clear that Congress's firm position is to support multilateral and bilateral trade engagements. Uh, one of the excuses that the U.S. Trade Representative has used uh, for uh, for against ARIA is to state that it would allow China to sell goods to a TPP nation that could then turn around and sell uh, that good to the United States and uh, undermine uh, US, uh, U.S. goods because of unfair subsidies or unfair um, Practices in China that would be washed by the participating TPP nation and then sold in the United States. That's that's an excuse. So they would take this approach. That if six of the countries or several of the countries uh, in TPP uh, already have a trade a free trade agreement with the United States, Canada, Mexico, uh, United States, Australia, uh, Korea, uh, excuse me, some others, six of them, and then five of them are involved not involved in a trade agreement with the United States. Japan would represent of those five. 95% of the economy. How would you respond to the U.S. trade representative uh, with their approach?
3: Well, th- thank you, Senator, and I uh, totally agree with your analysis of, the, um, of the, the problem that we're behind in this in this area and we're losing opportunities. I mean, to, to speak to Mr. Um, Courier's uh, concern about Japan, because we pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Australia and New Zealand uh, are paying 27.5%, I think, for beef. Um, we're paying 38.5%. Um, and that number's dropping for them, and we're losing market share by by the day. So we're losing opportunities today, and that's why I would say we need to get back in this game, um, and I just don't think there's any substitute for doing a broad regional agreement like TPP. Um, it's, it's, um, it, it has the three big uh, power. There are three big elements of power in, the, in, in this agreement. One is the economic benefit, like access to big markets like Japan's. Uh, second is... The um, strategic benefit of being embedded in this region and being a leader in the regional um, uh, institution building and, and regional architecture of, the, uh, of, of this critical region Indo-Pacific. And third, which gets to this point about um, possible, you know, Chinese working the system to get their advantage, it, it establishes economic rules and uh, standards which. Uh, countries like Japan, like Vietnam, like you know all the rest of the members here, and ultimately others that get drawn in. There are a lot of people interested in joining the Comprehensive Partnership, the new CPTPP, um, like Thailand and Indonesia and others that have expressed interest. Um, you know, it, it establishes a set of rules on things like. Um, digital governance, on subsidies, on uh, you know more broadly the role of the state and the economy, on good regulatory practices, on a whole bunch of things that are American preferred standards and that play to our advantages. And so, I think we need to be—if we're not going to rejoin CPTPP—we need to have an alternative that uh, draws people into this rulemaking process on our terms, and that will help deal with a lot of these uh, efforts to try to circumvent uh, uh, the the, uh, the existing uh, system. Uh, Thank you. And uh, just to
0: follow up on on Japan, I mean, do we have any trade negotiations taking place right now uh, outside of Japan? I know we do, but could you kind of give us where you think we are with some of these uh, negotiations?
3: I I think that we're so distracted by the China trade issue that we're not really focused even on Japan. I mean, we are going to meet this week. The president's going to Japan, and there'll probably be some conversation about the bilateral U.S.-Japan deal um, I, I don't think that's a high priority for USTR Lighthizer. I think he's got to deal with this China issue, and probably rightly so. That is, a, that is an enormous set of issues. Um, in terms of other countries, I've heard talk of uh, some conversations with the Philippines, um, maybe some conversations with Taiwan. That's complicated, but, but an important economy in the region um, uh, and, uh, and then there's talk of the UK. I wouldn't hold my breath on that. I think the UK has a lot of issues they have to go through. Um, you know, these bilaterals are, are fine, but they're no substitute for, uh, for the, the broader regional agreement that shows our leadership uh, um, and establishes uh, that, those, that firm position in, um, in, in our strategic position in the region and our rulemaking leadership.
0: Could you spend a little bit of time explaining the importance of multilateral versus bilateral just to lay that out?
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, in a narrow sense, if you if you think that sitting across the table from one country is going to get you advantage, um, you know, I see the argument if it's a purely sort of zero-sum conversation. But if but in, in trade, it's much more complicated than that, and you've got a lot of different um, players with different things to ask for and to offer. And I think, you know, TPP was shown, and there's been um, uh, sort of even regression analysis done about this, that the benefits of a plurilateral or even broader. I mean, a multilateral would be the best, but we've, we've really, I think, concluded that that's not going to happen in the WTO in our lifetime. But, but these plurilateral agreements do bring uh, multiple benefits. Um, they, they provide a, an ability to get trade-offs with different, uh, different players, um, and I think they, they just have bigger economic bang for the buck and bigger strategic bang for the buck. So um, I think that's definitely the way we should be headed. Thank you, Mr. Goodman. Senator Markey.
1: Again, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Dr. Lewis, I want to come back to your report again, just to read these staggering numbers which you have included. And this goes to British Petroleum. British Petroleum projects that two-thirds of new power generation will come from renewables over the next two decades. Let me say that again. British Petroleum projects that two-thirds of new power generation will come from renewables over the next two decades. Uh, Quote, developing countries committed, developing countries committed $177 billion to renewables last year, $177 billion last year, up 20% from the prior year. This is even larger than $107 billion in developed countries. So in developing countries, more money is being spent on on renewables than developed countries, where investment was actually down 19% last year. Last year marked the largest shift towards renewable energy investments in developing countries that we have seen yet in the Indo-Pacific alone, investment totaled $168.9 billion. So that's an incredible market that's opening up, uh, heading towards $7.8 trillion over the next uh, 20 years. So if you're looking for a market, there it is, it's a growth market. Uh, and. Uh, and the price of renewables and battery storage technology are plummeting. They're making these other technologies less competitive because of the efficiency the, that the marketplace is driving with these technologies. So let me just you know, continue with you, Dr. Lewis. Southeast Asia's energy demand is expected to grow by two-thirds by 2040, requiring massive investment in new energy generation and transmission. Uh, these are challenges uh, but uh, they are they are surmountable. Indonesia, the largest economy in Southeast Asia, comprises thousands of islands, over 900 of which are permanently inhabited. So power generation can be a significant problem, and central generators make less sense than other options. Dr. Lewis, how important is renewable energy in meeting 21st century energy demands in that region? Uh, And which countries in the Indo-Pacific represent some of the greatest opportunities for growth?
4: Thank you for the question. Um, I mean, as you've laid out, this is just a massive market with extreme potential um, for whoever is going to be providing these technologies and supplying the investment. And right now, the U.S. is leading in many of these technologies. Um, Within the Indo-Pacific, right now, of course, China is the largest market in the world, um, but India is rapidly expanding uh, its renewable energy uh, use as well, um, especially in the in the solar energy industry. And we see Southeast Asia is as really kind of the next up and coming source. You know, there's been a lot of focus on China, of course, in the last couple of decades, as it's really been the engine for growth um, in the clean energy space as well as in the fossil energy space. But if you look forward to the next two decades, the fastest growth rates are going to be in Southeast Asia.
1: Um, so which so so Indonesia? Just go down Indonesia, the list. Where are Vietnam, the opportunities?
4: Yeah, it's it's the countries you mentioned: Indonesia, Vietnam. Um, to some extent Thailand and how big um,
1: will these markets become for renewables?
4: How big will the markets how be? big will yeah. they become? Uh, you know the projections are are all over the place I mean these this is going to be um, you know the, a lot of these countries as you mentioned are still electrifying so there's a lot of need to build out um, new energy systems and I think the real question is what is that? going to look like and what model are they going to take? Are they going to copy the model that China used and build out a coal-based energy system with large centralized power plants? Uh, It doesn't make sense often in these countries where you haven't built out a full grid connection, you have the opportunity to leapfrog to more advanced distributed energy technologies that are also clean.
1: Right. Yeah. So countries like Vietnam are graduating from the United Nations least developed country status, meaning that they no longer qualify for certain assistance. Increasingly, then, they are likely to look to countries like China to be their primary lender. And a recent report from the Center for American Progress states that, quote, the absence of U.S. leadership on climate is giving China wide leeway to set the standards by which the rest of the world is judging its actions. One has to look no further than the recent Belt and Road Forum to see indications that Xi Jinping is trying to fill what he sees as a vacuum in global leadership. According to that CAP report, the United States, quote, should push international lending institutions to form capacity-building funds to help developing nations make the leap from low-standard to high-standard projects. These would include transitioning from high-emission coal plants to cleaner energy technologies. Unfortunately, developing nations with high energy demand often seek coal plants based on outdated information about the cost difference between coal power and renewable energy. So the inexorable pressure of kind of intellectual investment already made in one approach blocks them from seeing that the renewable pathway is now less expensive and cleaner and ultimately more efficient for their country. So can you talk about that?
4: Yes, I, I think there's a couple of drivers that uh, behind the decisions that are made in these countries. Of course, you know, when they're looking to develop these projects, they're looking for inexpensive technologies, inexpensive capital. But in this day and age, renewable energy provides some of the cheapest um, options for electricity, particularly in remote areas. And so there's really no reason why these countries should be turning to coal plants. Um, even if China's offering them a good deal on a dismantled, outdated coal plant, right? Um, and I think the other part of this is that... You're,
1: you're saying yeah. that China is breaking down its jalopy coal plants, putting them, putting them on ships and sending them over to other Asian countries and reassembling stuff that, coal plants that they're taking down. And, uh, and these countries are just kind of getting sold... Kind of a, a used car <laughs> with high mileage and lower efficiency uh, when they should be moving over here to something that's less expensive, cleaner, and better for their country in the long term.
4: Unfortunately, this is the, the sort of the dark side of leapfrogging, where as countries move to more advanced technologies, they often want to sort of offsource the technologies they're no longer using, if because they still have a useful life and they'd like to to cash in. In fact, you know, the U.S. did this when. China was looking for advanced vehicle technologies a few decades ago, you know, we sold them our older technology as opposed to our state-of-the-art technology, but I think, you know, the thing to point out is that China's also exporting most, more solar panels around the world than any other country in the world, so it's not just a story of China exporting coal plants, they're playing an important role in all technologies, including clean energy, but the United States could be much more involved there. Um, because we are still leading in a lot of these technologies. And our bilateral engagement in the region has really dwindled in the last few years, and this is an important part of this, as well as our multilateral engagement. You know, the Paris Agreement is not just about reducing climate change. It's about opening up new clean energy markets around the world. It's about assisting developing countries and thinking about their low-carbon energy future. And the U.S. has led in helping shape this conversation for many years and is still could play a very important role there.
1: Beautiful. Thank you.
0: Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Markey. And uh, Dr. Lewis, I think a couple of questions I have for you on this uh, issue. Uh, Obviously uh, renewable energy opportunities are significant. Uh, Colorado home to the National Renewable Energy Laboratory has had a great number of partnerships with international uh, uh, organizations, uh, nations around the globe to uh, help further uh, both understanding education, technical capabilities, uh, and capacity for renewable energy. when you when you look at when you look at sort of the barriers to entry though uh, to China and others, uh, renewable energy really faces the same kind of renewable energy I guess goods or technologies uh, from the United States faces the same kind of barriers in China as uh, agriculture does or any other thing. Is is that correct?
4: That's correct now. It wasn't true in the early stages, right, but now that China has developed several national champions in this industry, it is more of a protected market.
0: Yeah, and so so as we focus on uh, just, you know, how we're going to tear down barriers for intellectual property, or at least make sure they're they're, they're abiding by standards uh, and norms that we would follow when, when it comes to international intellectual property uh, protections, when it comes to opening markets up for, like, agriculture, we need to focus on that for renewable energy goods as well.
4: Absolutely, and you know in fact a lot of our most successful bilateral clean energy engagement with China has had a strong intellectual property training component where you know if you're bringing together in the National Laboratories, whether it's you know NREL LbNL all the other ones that have been involved in working in China for many years, um, they've played a really important role in training researchers about intellectual property because you know, it might surprise you right, that not every researcher in China has, is an expert, an expert in this in the US either. Um, I've been part of training sessions um, with US-Chinese partnerships where we actually bring in IP lawyers to talk to researchers in the national laboratories, look for how you know, where they see problems and how we can work through this. Uh, the US-China Clean Energy Research Center was an excellent model of, of how this could work well. Um, but I think that you know you'd be, of course. Now China has innovative companies. Many of these companies domestically are pushing for stronger IP protections at home, because China is you know a different place than it was a couple decades ago. And so you actually see pressure from the inside as well for China to have stronger IP protections. Yeah.
0: And Dr. Lucy, you believe that the language in the gardner markey bill that provides or creates the U.S.-Asia Energy Partnership Program could be a, a, a tool for U.S. renewable energy opportunities in Asia.
4: I, I hope that it would be, yes. Great.
0: I hope so, too, so thank you. Uh, Mr. Goodman, a couple questions for you. With the trade war tariffs escalation of tension between the U.S. and China as it relates to trade, how has that affected trade in uh, you know, perhaps with ASEAN countries or other uh, Asian nations? What has what the sort of side effect of that trade war been, and how has that affected our ability uh, to increase capacities, trade opportunities there?
3: Um, well, uh, everyone in the region is, is very uh, worried about this trade war because it uh, risks uh, disrupting um, patterns of trade that have been established over the last you know, 20, 30 years in which um, you know, there are elaborate supply chains across the region. Um, Southeast Asia is very much uh, central to that. And um, I think people are worried about disruption to obviously both of their biggest markets, but also to these patterns of supply chains. Now, some countries may benefit actually from some of this disruption. So for example, Vietnam may be a beneficiary if, if, these tariffs stick, and uh, American companies make a decision to move some of their production out of China into Vietnam, for example. There are um, analyses that show that you know Vietnam could actually, on a net basis, be an economic beneficiary in that sense. Uh, but I'm not sure the Vietnamese government would say you know we'd prefer that you know sort of outcome but also with tariffs and disruption of, of trade patterns and you know, potential uh, continued conflict between our two biggest trading partners to be you know the price of getting that indi- additional investment. So they're mixed results, but it certainly provides an opportunity or it, it puts an accent on the importance of our resolving the trade problems with China, um, which are gonna be very challenging because I think even if we get a deal, and I still believe we are gonna get a deal because I think there are incentives for both presidents to try to Uh, come to the table, but everybody knows that's not going to solve the underlying problem, so we're going to have to keep working at these issues of subsidies and intellectual property, technology acquisition, and and so forth. Um, But meanwhile, we should be dealing with ASEAN, and I think it's great that you mentioned ASEAN in here. There are a couple of initiatives that are already on the table. The ASEAN, uh, US-ASEAN Connect initiative, which I think the Obama administration started late in its uh, time and has been renewed by the Trump administration looking at a bunch of areas, including energy cooperation. Um, And then the um, Smart Cities Partnership, there's a U.S.-ASEAN Smart Cities Partnership that I mentioned in my written testimony uh, where we're working with ASEAN countries to help them with the, you know, they've got a huge urbanization challenge and helping them uh, bring uh, smart solutions to that, uh, something that the U.S. can help with, including, by the way, renewable energy um, solutions. So I think um, there's a lot of work to be done with ASEAN. ASEAN's a challenging place because it's 10 very diverse countries that you know, uh, do things in a very different way than than we're sort of familiar with, but really powerful potential. A lot of people, a lot of economic growth opportunities. Uh, ARIA also has a very
0: strong uh, human rights democracy, rule of law component to it, uh, additional authorizations for funding for human rights issues. Uh, More and more attention is rightfully being uh, given to uh, the situation in Xinjiang uh, in China uh, as it relates to uh, the treatment of Uyghurs uh, and at least a million uh, people who are in re-education camps, uh, basically being held prisoners. Uh, And the recent attention has also turned to U.S. companies that are manufacturing goods in uh, in that region that may be using labor from these camps as well. Could you talk a little bit about how ARIA can be used to help uh, economically uh, send a message to China that this kind of treatment uh, and this kind of uh, violation of human rights and basic dignity is unacceptable?
3: Well, first of all, the situation in Xinjiang is just appalling. It's, it's um, um, you know, just I, last week or the week before, there were uh, back-to-back programs on the daily podcast uh, the New York Times did. And if you listen to that, it's just absolutely uh, just um, unconscionable what's happening there. And it is something I think the U.S. needs to, needs to speak out on. Um, I I think that we – I think the the elements of ARIA that address um, the human rights and the values questions are really important, and I'm glad you included that in there. Um, From an economic perspective, you know, I think we want to – it's one of the reasons that we should be engaging with China on on trade and investment and other issues because I do think it's still true that if we can – um, if we can incentivize China to do the right things in economics on, on um, uh, the, the, the rules and norms and standards of trade and uh, economic uh, activity, it does. there is a correlation to their improved general behavior. I know that's not going to solve the problem by itself, but I do think it, it helps. So I think it's important that you've got both uh, economic and, and values uh, uh, pillars to, to ARIA and should continue to find specific ways to implement those.
0: Thank you. Senator Markey.
1: Thank you, Mr. Chairman, very much. Again, Dr. Lewis, I want to keep coming back to you. This is very scary what you have in your testimony about um, electric vehicles. Um, The goal of China, as they have stated, is 4.6 million electric vehicles in 2020 with a a goal to eventually ban uh, any kind of uh, traditional... and in internal combustion engine. Now, again, that single policy in this huge market drives policy around the world, and uh, every company in the world then starts to say, "Well, we have to start moving on this track as well." Uh, one uh, one Detroit uh, publication states: "This is from your testimony. The U.S. auto industry risks becoming an isolated." technical backwater, while China surges into the global lead in a technology its government has targeted as one where they want to be the leader in the 21st century. Uh, the market for electric vehicles, batteries, and other energy storage applications is massive, and the opportunities for American technology companies and investors is significant. So we see one country leading and another country not really even talking about what our plan is uh, in order to capture this massive marketplace that is going to open up because of China's leadership. So what is your recommendation to the United States to deal with these issues?
4: Well, my main recommendation would be that our ability to to lead in these technologies, to supply clean energy technology to Asia and the world starts at home. Um, we have an innovation ecosystem that China envies and we need to be much more strategic about where we're investing in the clean energy, um, the entire innovation across the supply chain. Uh, We have very innovative programs like ARPA-E, Cyclotron Road, programs that look to incubate early stage (coughs) innovative technologies. Um, we could be much stronger in policies that support the deployment of clean energy at home because that's where our our companies are going to um, be able to test their new innovative technologies and allow them to to sell them around the world. Uh, You see U.S. companies often demonstrating their technologies in China and elsewhere because it's the biggest market and it's where they can often uh, sell their technologies. The administration
1: is talking about rolling back the fuel economy standards in our country, which, in my opinion, might give too many American companies a sense of false security because they're only looking at this marketplace when they're not looking at this global marketplace that is opening up with high goals that are being set by China and other countries in the vehicles that people are going to buy in the 21st century, not the 20th century. So that's a great concern to me. Um, Mr. Goodman, when you look at these issues, these clean energy issues, these automotive issues, and you look at amongst other things, the intellectual property theft that goes on wholesale in China. Could you talk to those issues in terms of what the long-term economic impact on our country will be?
3: Sure. Thank you, Mr. Uh, uh, Senator. It's it's a really important set of issues. Um, Joanne is much more the energy expert than I am, but if I could just make it a shameless piece of advertising at CSAS, we have uh, something called Reconnecting Asia, which is a a, a database uh, <coughs> website on about 14,000 projects, infrastructure projects across. Uh, the, the Indo-Pacific and beyond. And and we're increasingly focused on the energy story, so we're actually doing more work on that, including on renewable um, uh, energy infrastructure. And so stay tuned, because we're going to okay, have good. some more thoughts Very on important. that over time. Um, and um, uh, sorry, one other thought from what that earlier conversation. Uh, your capacity-building efforts, I think, are really important. And getting in there, as I mentioned, in my own even oral testimony, the programs where we go in and we help countries understand what the you know costs and benefits of taking a Chinese jalopy mm-hmm. versus a U.S. Or I would say a U.S., Japanese, Australian, I mean, we should be working with partners who are also offering a good, solid Toyota Corolla. Um, You know, I think often we're seen as the Lexus provider, the high-end, the really expensive provider, but there's a lot of technology we could provide that is solid and and reliable and affordable that that we should be trying to get in front of um, countries and help them understand We had had a Cash
1: for Clunkers program in the United States, but that was meant to take the clunkers off the road. Their program is these... Asian countries will pay cash for the clunkers from exactly Asian. And this is why like I think their this junkyard
3: uh, is the other countries in Asia, which is crazy. This is why I think it's so important to have our experts go in and, and, and try and explain the, yeah. the, the downsides of taking that kind of uh, cheap option. Um, but if we're not there and you've got a choice, my colleague Dan Rundy's very colorful about this. He said, if you've got a choice of a dirty um, you know, coal project and no project to provide power or energy, Uh, you know, you're going to take the dirty one. So we've got to be in the game. I'm sorry I haven't answered your question. IP is a real problem, and it's a a big and persistent problem. We need to keep working on it. Um, And uh, I think the good news is, as Joanna alluded to, the Chinese, I think actually at the central level, understand this is a problem for them too because they've got technology too that they want to protect. They've got a problem at local levels and in enforcement. But it's something we need to keep their feet to the fire on.
1: You agree? Thank you. Thank you both very much. Excellent testimony. Thank, thank you. you, Senator
0: Marky. Our next hearing may be a cash for jalopies uh, program <laughs> or something like that. Uh, power plants included. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, we're, we unfortunately have to have a stop at eleven here. Uh, thank you for attending today's hearing. Appreciate your time and testimony today. Appreciate to Mr. Courier being here as well. For the information of, of all members, the record will remain open until the close of business on. Uh, Thursday uh, next week, including for members to submit records for the record. I kindly ask the witness to respond as promptly as possible. Your responses will be made a part of the record. And thank you very much for your time and testimony today. Hearings adjourned. Thank you.